Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Church Nottingham podcast. It's great to have you with us. My name is Amy, and together with my husband, Johnny, we lead the church here in Nottingham, England. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. And if we can help you in any way at all, feel free to get in touch and email us at info at trinitychurchnottingham.org. Okay, let's jump into the podcast. One of my least favorite family chores, one of my least favorite things to do as part of the Hughes family is to go and do the supermarket shop. I absolutely hate it. I don't want you to think for a minute that I feel I'm above it. Now, I do plenty at home. My areas of responsibility are are well-crafted, particularly responsible for the dishwasher. I can do a job in the laundry room, and there are various other things, including the bins, but not limited to the bins, uh, that I'm responsible for in our house. But I I start to fall apart when when I step over the threshold of the supermarket. Things just start to scatter my sort of adult responsibility uh, microchip just leaves me and I just feel completely at sea. One of the things I, I really struggle with is finding anything. I can't find anything. Amy just goes and there's like this intuition. Ah, the peanut butter. It's northwest. And she heads in the direction and finds it. But for me, I am sort of, uh, you know, just moment by moment trying to find my way through things and find my way to the things that I have on the list. And part of that, let's be honest, is an experience. I haven't taken the time to learn. I haven't studied the map of Lidl or Asda or wherever it is that I am. And I'm often in a hurry. I'm often in a hurry to get out of there as quickly as possible. You might say that's a character flaw. I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you, but it's just the truth. But the other problem I have, and I think this is the main problem when it comes to sort of doing the supermarket shop, is that I go in there and often I have such a strong expectation of what the thing I'm looking for looks like. That even if it deviates from that picture, that mental image, fractionally, a tiny, tiny bit, I miss it. I can be standing in front of a jar of peanut butter. I can be standing in front of 15, a thousand jars of peanut butter, but if the exact jar of peanut butter that I'm expecting to see isn't visible to me, I will stand there until some unsuspecting shop assistant comes and helps me. You know, often we can have such strong expectations of things that, uh, that what actually the gift that's been uh, right in front of our eyes, ready for us to receive, we miss out on it. Last week, we began to look at the responses that Jesus received to his manifesto of the kingdom. And what we said was that one of the key postures that as disciples we need to embody is this posture of attentiveness. And that's right. As we're about to see today, many of those who were closest to what Jesus was doing, the things he was saying, and the things that from this point on in Luke 4 that he was about to enact, they missed it. Because they were insufficiently attentive. They missed out. They couldn't see what he was actually doing. But what we're going to learn today is that it's one thing to have our eyes fixed on him. We need it. We need to have our eyes fixed on him. But if we're to stick with what he's doing, we have to be prepared to constantly and continually lay down our pre-prepared expectations our presuppositions of how he will do what he does. 
We need to stay, if you like, we need to stay open. We need to have a posture, not just of attentiveness, but of openness. So let's dive in to our scripture today and see what we find. And I just want to, I'm going to spend most of my time in verse 22, which Kirsten read so well to us. Here's what it says. and it says this, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. There's more to the scripture. We'll unpack a little bit more, but this is the key piece. And what we see as we come across this scripture is a, if you like, a twofold response to Jesus. On the one hand, we have uh, an initial positive response, a positive immediate response. People say things like, wow, this guy speaks well, or, or in the language of the, uh, the New Testament, all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words. Some commentators say that this is a picture here of, of people affirming Jesus' rhetorical skill. He's a good preacher. I wonder who taught him to preach. He must have been watching T.D. Jakes or someone similar. He really gets it. This guy can, man can preach. This guy gets it. He knows what's up. But beyond that, beneath that, there's a secondary response, which when you push a little bit further into what Jesus is doing, you see, people begin to take offense, and the offense particularly is about his heritage. It's where he's from. They say, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? It's as if what we're seeing is that this twofold response is in play. Once they begin to uh, consider more deeply who he is, they take offense. They get beneath the surface and they don't like what they see. And it seems to be centered around Jesus' background. You know, they just had no expectation that when Messiah, uh, Israel's king, would come, he would be the bloke down the road son. That he would have spent his life crafting sermons in a carpenter's shop. No, 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 that can't be right. That's not kingly work. That's not how God would do it, surely. And so because of that, they take offense at him. Uh, I love this phrase. One scholar said, how could this neighbor be the fulfillment? How could this one, this regular Joe from down the road, this regular son of Joe, from down the road. How could he be the one? What we're seeing here is that age-old thing, familiarity, breeding, contempt. There's a general attitude, you might say, of ambivalence or, if you like, a mixed response around Jesus. For whatever reason, he doesn't seem to be ticking all the boxes. And so they're offended. He doesn't meet. He doesn't match up to their existing Expectations, kind of like me in front of the peanut butter jar. They can't see what's happening in front of them because their expectations are so rigidly fixed on a certain view of what God would do. And so their response is of deep disappointment. And we all know what it's like to experience disappointment. You know the story. You've been waiting for six whole months patiently for your birthday. You have been dropping the kinds of hints that only a fool could fail to receive. And your friend and your spouse and your children and your parent delete as appropriate. Surely they've caught up. Surely they understand. And then it comes to your birthday and you feel the gift and it feels a little bit like what you've been hoping for. But you unwrap the present and it isn't what you expected. You, can you feel now with me the dejection? that comes with that. 
Silly example. What about this? Maybe you've been working hard on a particular project for the last six months and you're hoping that it's going to secure the promotion you've been hoping for and expecting at work. And you go into your uh, meeting with your uh, line manager, your supervisor at work, and you're expecting one conversation. But the conversation you have is a completely different conversation. You leave the room not feeling elated and inflated, but dejected and despondent. You know that disappointment. Or what about, let's make it spiritual. We're in church. Let's give a spiritual example. You've been praying. You've been praying for weeks. You've been praying for months. You've been praying for years for a particular thing from God. And, and you've described to God exactly how it will come and what it will look like when it comes. And you haven't seen it. You haven't seen it arriving in the way that you expected. And that's left you feeling unheard. And if you're honest, it's left you feeling more than a little bit unloved. Do you know that often we can become more attached to our expectations of how God will move in our lives than we are attached to God himself? Let me say that again. We can become so attached to our expectations for how God will work in our lives than we are to God himself. That is a form, a very subtle one, but it is a form of idolatry. And our expectations can therefore lead us to becoming blind to what God's actually doing in our lives. For those around Jesus, this is what happens. They're expecting a certain kind of Messiah. And this one doesn't tick the boxes, and so they miss him. And as a consequence of that, they do what we do in these moments. They intensify their request. Show us a sign. We need to see a picture. Give us some proof. Make it real. We like your message. Deliver on it. Prove it. You've professed, now produce. How often we do that with God. It's the same attitude we see later on in the gospel, Luke 23, 35. He saved others. Let himself save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. Come down off that cross, prove it. And Jesus is away, and we're just going to skate through this bit, but the rest of the, chat, the rest of the chunk we had read to us is basically Jesus becoming aware of that attitude. And calling it out. And he calls it out by giving two examples of Elijah and Elisha. Prophets when uh, a time when Israel was at Israel's lowest ebb. And what he's saying is, you people are just like the people that Elijah and Elisha ministered to. In your hearts is unbelief. And because you don't believe, God is skating over you. He's skipping past you. You the ones at the core of what should be happening. You've missed it. And so God is going to the people outside the family of God. They're the ones who have the eyes to see. They're the ones whose hearts are open. They're not allowing their expectations to stand in the way of what God wants to do. This message is received, this prophetic message is received by the crowd. uh, Not as an affirmation, it's fair to say. They tried to seize Jesus and throw him off the cliff. Which, as a beginning to your preaching career isn't the best. And, uh, and there we go, that's Jesus for you. Church. And anyone who's listening, how do you receive, how do we receive, how do we interpret, how do we understand this scripture, this message today? If we're hearing it right, we should be more than a little bit uncomfortable. We should be more than a little bit concerned. We should be asking the question, am I, 
am I doing this, Jesus? Do I do this too? Have I allowed my expectations, the expectations I've received from others, my spiritual mentors? Have I allowed the expectations the culture has given to me? Have I allowed the expectations that have been framed by that past move of God to stand in the way of what you're actually doing in my life? Am I allowing my theology? Lord, am I allowing my, the vision of you, my picture of you, to become an idol? Am I allowing my vision of you to stand in the way of how you are working? It's complex stuff. Sometimes we can be so certain about how we think God will show up in our lives that we end up missing him. More than that, we end up working against him when he comes. So we need to listen. We need to learn to receive Jesus with open minds, open hearts, and open hands. This is the posture. Week after week. That you've got this by now. There's one sermon here at Trinity. Well, only one. And it's this. Surrender. It's the same today. It's the, it's, I don't know what Nick is preaching on next week, but this will be it. It's surrender. This is what we do. This is who we are. And this has been the story of my life, and it's not easy, I have to say. There are, and there have been a few occasions where in my spiritual life, I, I, I've, come up to, I've come against a barrier. It almost doesn't matter what's happening in my personal life. It's not about uh, uh, work necessarily. It's not about friendships or relationships, though sometimes it comes in those forms. But often it's in my spiritual life, in my inner life. And I come up against a barrier. And whatever I do, however disciplined I become, I cannot break through that wall. I'm not able to grow beyond it. And it's as if in those moments, God says to me, Johnny, nothing's going to shift unless something changes in you. And what I do in those moments, and they're often described by an absence of the feeling of God's presence with me. They're often described by a sense that my spiritual life is getting dry and the things that I was doing in prayer aren't working anymore. What I often do is say, God, it's your turn. Show me a sign. Give me a sign. Come on, show up, God, in my life. I need a revelation of your nearness. I need you to impress me right now because unless you show up tangibly, I'm gonna stay stuck here. God has rarely, if ever, responded to me rubbing the bottle, as it were. He's always made me wait. And in and through those dark nights, when I've passed through that wall uh, to the other side, when time has elapsed or I've opened myself to him in a fresh way, what I look back and see is that God has intensified. He has given me a deeper intimacy with him, but not in the way I would have hoped Not in the profound sort of burning bush moments usually, but in the still small voice, in the quickening of my spirit, in the increased and intensified hunger for him. Not in the way that he would show up to me, but for himself and in himself. And I've had to change. That's usually what happens. I've had to change. And often, if not always, what has changed in me is I become more open and less prescriptive and less controlling, and more available, and more aware, and more open to mystery. I had a conversation this week with a, a friend of mine in this congregation. He's part of a family who are in this congregation, and he was just detailing the story of his family over the last 
nine months to a year, and began sometime mid to late last year where he was um, approached and offered essentially this opportunity to apply for a job in a different part of the country. And they prayed about it. They're some of the most prayerful people I've ever met. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And they sensed God's hand, God's hand might be on this. And, and they did all the things you do, you know. They, after having prayed, they visited and they looked at houses and schools and, and they, they sort of laid fleeces and they felt God saying, no, just go and go and you know, explore this. And they uh, put the house on the market, I think, and began to look at other houses. And my friend went for the interview and it looked like a shoo-in. And they had said to him, come and apply for it. Got to the final stage and he just narrowly missed out on being offered this job. And they come to that moment and they're saying, God, what are you doing? But okay, you're God, we're not. Maybe you were doing something else and they sensed God God was saying, look, maybe this is a time to move within the city or outside of the city of Nottingham. And they said again, Lord, well, you lead us. They started looking for houses and they saw this dream house. And it had space for prayer. It, it was more spacious for their family. It just seemed again to have God's grace on it. And they went into this process with sealed bids and they put their bid in in faith and they, rece- they got it. They were approved and this house was ready and waiting. And the final moment out of nowhere, their buyer, the buyer on their house, had been sewn up for ages, pulled out. And there they were, just unable to buy this house. And again, ground zero, just asking, Lord, what are you doing? But when I look at this couple, when I look at their family, when I heard from this friend this week, what I was faced with is a, a people, a family, who have remained open, who've remained humble, who've been seeking and have been surrendered. And they're still seeking God now and asking, Lord, what are you doing? Whatever it is, we're on board. What if that's the posture? What if spiritual, the sign of spiritual maturity and the people of God is not greater and greater certainty, but greater and greater flexibility? What if God is trying to craft and create a people to consecrate a people in these days who are humble and open to him, however he would show up, whenever he would show up, and to whoever he would show up? What about if that's what he's doing in these days? You know, the key church is not to be entitled or to have strong, closed expectations, but to be open. And this morning, before uh, our gathering, I just was praying in the prayer room and I saw on the window that text from Isaiah 43, 19. It says, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. You know, the truth of this passage we've had read to us today and I've been speaking from, is that people, the people who know the Bible, the people who know the, the full canon, the last 15 years of Bethel and Hillsong songs, verbatim, from the heart, the people who pray three times a day, following to the letter, the Trinity, pathway of prayer, who lead on Alpha, who are part of a hub, who are even, dare I say it, in a few. Those people can be in danger of missing God when he shows up. It's people like me, because our expectations can be so locked in. But those disciples who inherit the kingdom are those who are certain about the who and the why, but remain open to the what and the how. They're able to say, I don't know. And so they're never closed down to being surprised by God. They are on the adventure with the Holy Spirit every day. They're able to say along with Mary, let it be to me 
according to thy word. Church, how can we ensure that we don't miss Jesus when he's working? And he's working now. We have to surrender our expectations continually, again and again. And this, I'm doing it now, can you see? This is a posture of surrender. Of open hearts, of open minds, of open hands. Where we give up, as I said last week, the illusion of control. It was never real. And we also give up the illusion that we know what's best for us. And we entrust ourselves into God's hands. Are you willing to do that today? Come, Holy Spirit. Free us from the desire we have to control, to manipulate you, to force you to act in a way that makes us feel comfortable. We believe and we say that sometimes you are working in such a powerful way that if we saw it, we wouldn't allow it. And so we surrender again. We surrender God to mystery. We surrender to the great unknown. If only you would promise us that you'd be with us there. And you have promised us that even in the valley of the shadow of death, you will be with us. That your rod and staff, they'll comfort us. That you'll prepare a table before us even in the presence of our enemies. That you'll anoint our heads with oil and that our cups will overflow. Spirit of God, now give grace. Give grace to live in that place. The place of surrender, which is the place of adventure. Come on, God. Consecrate a people now. Don't miss this opportunity, Father, to bore deeply into souls. To hollow out what needs to be removed so that your glory may be made manifest in the mundane and in the mystery. And we say today that we trust you. We trust you. Thanks for listening to some of our teaching here at Trinity. We hope it's blessed you. If you live in the city or live outside of Nottingham and want to connect more with the church, check out some of our practices and pathways on our website. We call them one, few, company, and many. We're passionate about encountering Jesus, becoming like him, and doing the things that he did, both individually and in our lives together, so that we may see the church on fire and the city come alive. You can find these on our website under the Connect tab. Thanks for listening. Thank you.